Because the main section of our passage tonight is about prayer. It's a prayer that Solomon makes. And so we're going to look into the nature of praying. We're going to see how are we to pray and why do we even pray? Why even spend the time praying? Well, if I were to ask you, what is one of the most important things in the Christian life? Believers. What is one of the most important things in the Christian life? Think of some things. Generally, I don't think prayer comes to the top of our list. It might. But then, even if we were to say prayer is one of the most important things in the Christian life, if we took a practical look at most of our lives, it wouldn't really reflect that. So we might theoretically say, yeah, prayer is one of the most important things in the Christian life. But if you look at how much time or perhaps how much energy or uh, whatever you spend in prayer every day, your life probably might not reflect that. I can tell you for a long time, mine does not, and mine still doesn't. Because prayer is of extreme importance. And why do I say this? It's because we're commanded everywhere in Scripture to pray, all of the time. If you look at different passages, I mean this quite literally. We're commanded to pray in every place. Paul says this. In 1 Timothy 2.8, we're commanded to pray unceasingly or without stopping. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we're commanded to pray always and without giving up or without growing faint of heart. That's Luke 18.1. And we're commanded to pray for one another, James 5.16. And so, if this is the case that God commands us over and over and over again to pray, we want to look into what prayer is and why it's so important, Right? Wouldn't that be of interest to us? Besides, that's the theme of our passage, so. The Westminster Catechism says this on prayer, a definition of prayer for you. Very concise. It says this. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of the Spirit. You see already how it's Trinitarian? We offer our prayers unto God in Christ Jesus by the, Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. With the confession of our sins and the thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. One more time. Prayers and offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ, by the help of the Spirit, with the confession of our sins and the thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So this text then in 1 Kings 8 is for anyone who doesn't pray enough. And the only people who can say that they don't pray enough are humble people, right? And if you're spending time in prayer, you will be a humble person, which makes this message for everyone in this room, meaning that none of us pray enough. You could spend 24 hours in prayer and you still wouldn't be praying enough because it is of extreme importance. And the more you pray, the more it will show you your need for prayer. So this this applies to all of you. A couple of pictures before we start on what prayer is for us, before we get into our points. What is prayer for us? Well, one example that scripture uses in Galatians is that of a child to his father. And, and the gospels use this too. A father is to protect and to care for his child. And a child cries out naturally to its father when they're in need. Think of little Eden and JT. And I'm sure JT's a great father but God is a greater father to those who are his children. So if you're a child of God, it should be your natural inclination, just like an infant, to cry out to God out of necessity. Or another one that's talked about in the New Testament and the Old Testament is that we are his bride. Why do we talk with God? 
Why do we pray to him? We're his bride. Lovers talk. They talk about important things and they also talk about trivial things. And it's, it's a basic concept that lovers will talk to one another. And so if we are as much in love with the sweetness of Jesus, we just sang about the goodness of Jesus. If we're so much in love with Jesus, we will be inclined to talk to him. We will naturally speak to him. Why? Because we're in love with him, because we're lovesick for Jesus. And so we have these two pictures, one of a child and one of, one of a bride. Now let's look at how we are to pray in this text. We have the idea of why prayer is important. Now we look at how to pray. In 1 Kings 8.22, let me read the first couple verses. It says this. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands towards heaven. And he said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all of their hearts. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. We'll begin with that because there's a number of important points in that that we want to mark. So how are you to pray? This is very practical. On a daily basis, how are you as a believer, dependent on God as a child and in love with Jesus as a bride, to come before him and to pray? Five practical points for you from Solomon's prayer. First of all, Bend your knees. Now, I don't mean that you must physically bend your knees every time that you pray. But if you read in verse 54 of 1 Kings 8, it says, Now, as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward heaven. So Solomon's posture in coming before the Lord is kneeling. He's kneeling down as he's praying. Why is that? to show his humble submission to God. That's what kneeling signifies. So you don't necessarily have to get down on your knees when you pray every single time, but the posture of your heart should be on your knees every single time that you pray. It's humble submission to God in prayer. And so we see that in verse 54. So is the posture of your heart when you come to God in prayer one of humble submission? Do you approach God on your knees or do you approach him pridefully with your chest puffed out and your nose in the air. Secondly, lift your hands. Lift your hands up. Again, in prayer, if you don't lift your hands up, it's not that God's not going to hear you if you don't physically lift your hands up, but the posture of your heart is to be one of lifting up your hands. You see this in verse uh, 22 and again in 54. What is Solomon doing when he comes before the Lord in prayer? Not only is he on his knees in humble submission to God, he's also with his hands open and stretched out towards heaven, signifying two things. One, that he's bearing his heart to God. You were made to bear your heart to God. And some of us fashion idols of God out of our crushed, or out of our friends, and we pour out all of our feelings and all of our troubles and all of our woes to our friends and our crush. And I don't know what we think they're going to do about it when we have an all-powerful God that we could be pouring out our troubles and woes to. It's, that's idolatry. You've replaced, you've put something else in God's place. And so what Solomon's doing by opening his arms towards heaven is he's bearing his heart towards God and he's, he's crying out to him. Again, that's our heart posture. The other thing that he's doing by, by lifting up his arms 
is being willing and ready to embrace whatever answer God sends him. In prayer, we cannot approach God, pray, and expect God to give us a certain answer. Unless it's a promise of his, God's answers often come in forms that we don't expect. And so when we pray, they must be with arms open towards heaven, ready and willing to humbly embrace whatever God sends as an answer. Because it, is, it will be every single time to his glory and to the good of his saints. And so then when we pray, and then even when life slaps you in the face, can you say every single time, whatever my God ordains is right. That's what this says. Whatever my God ordains is right. When you pray, when you lift your hands up, whatever my God ordains is right. And that is to be our heart posture in prayer. So first we have bend your knees. Lift your hands. By the way, you can definitely do this physically. But what it is to be is, is again, your heart posture. How do you approach the Lord in your attitude and in your heart? Thirdly, now we're getting to the words of what Solomon says. Verses 23 through 24. Praise him. This is how prayers open, with praise. I'm going to read 23 and 24 again so you get an idea of this. Listen to the things he says about God. 23. So after Solomon kneels down, he says, O Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you. There's no one else. It's you alone in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenants. That means he keeps his promises and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant, David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your strong hand have fulfilled it this day. And if you read through the Old Testament, there is no, there's hardly any prayer that does not open with just bursting praise to God. Every time the saints open their mouths, it is characteristic of them to be bursting with praise to God. And it shows your heart and why you're coming to God. Because of the first thing out of my mouth when I come to prayer is, I need this and I need this and I need this. Who does that show that I'm thinking about first? But if my, the first thing that I come to in prayer is, God, you are great. God, you keep your promises. God, you are a God of steadfast love. Then it shows that God is first in my mind. It shows our priorities in prayer, depending on what we say. And so, do our needs come first, or does praise burst out of our lips when we open them in prayer? As an illustration, I was thinking about, um, as summer's coming up, and I'm planting a garden this year. You know garden hoses, when you lay them out in the sun, and they heat up in the sun, and then right when you turn them on, what, com- what temperature water comes out first? Hot, hot water, right? In the same way, Believers who have been soaking in the sunlight presence of God, who have been reading his word and who care about his praise over their own problems will burst warm praise out of their mouth the moment that they open in prayer. Be a garden hose prayer. The other thing about praising God immediately when you open your mouth in prayer is that you're building the rest of your prayer on the promises and the character of God. Why would you come to God and apply yourself in prayer if you don't expect him to answer? You might as well do it yourself. It's because, you be- it's because we as believers believe that God is strong and powerful. Solomon says this, that he's the only God, which means he's the only one able and capable to answer our prayers. And also that he has got steadfast love for us and that he keeps his promises. And so what we're doing in this is as we're building our prayer, imagine like a house, as we're building our prayer, 
what we need in order for our prayer to be answered is a firm foundation. What's our firm foundation? God and his promises are our firm foundation. The house will crumble if there's nothing to hold it up. But if your foundation for this prayer that you're speaking is a firm foundation, which is God and the things that he says he is, then of course your prayer will stand. And so perhaps you've fallen into sin again. Then then how are you to pray? Remember God's mercy. Say, merciful God, who has and will forgive me in Christ Jesus. Remember his mercy. Or maybe you're praying for a lost family member or a lost friend. We just did this, praying for evangelism. Then you pray, God who is able to save and to bring the spiritually dead to life. We're remembering who he is before we pray our needs. That's why we praise God. One of the reasons. And so after we have bent our knees, after we've lifted our hands, then we're going to plead with him. We're going to plead with him. This is the meat of Solomon's prayer, 25 through 53, verses 25 through 53. He's pleading with God. This isn't some like silly little prayer that he doesn't mean. This isn't like, well, hopefully I feel better tomorrow. This is like, I mean, I'll read it to you. Imagine Solomon as he's praying this before the congregation of Israel. I'll read on. Imagine his tone as he's saying this. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you've promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. This is no wimpy prayer. He is pleading before the throne of grace boldly and intensely. And notice how he prays, now, therefore. He uses that phrase twice. That goes back to our last point. Why is he able to to pray all of these bold prayers? He bases it on the character of God. That's why he says, now, therefore. It's as if to say, God, you are strong and you are powerful and you are able. Now, therefore, hear my plea and answer it. He counts on God to work with those words, now, therefore. And so we are given the right as God's people. Believer, you are given the right to ask things of God boldly. Jesus says to ask. And why then are we so slow to do it? That's a matter of pride in our own hearts. Again, we're... We're creating, it's idolatry again in our hearts. Because instead of going to God and asking him for what we need on a daily basis, we create these cute little plans, these security trusts. And instead of Israel had these wooden idols, we make our little plans and we bow down to them and we worship them as if that's the only thing that matters. When if we were worshiping God, he would be providing for us anyways. And so, remember that God is rich. He's a king. And he gives good things to his people. And further, you are his child, and he gives good things to his child. And you are his bride, he gives good things to his bride. Why would he not? So pray boldly and pray intently, intensely. Listen to the things Solomon prays for. I'm not going to read through this whole thing because it would take a long time, but I'll give you a short list of the things he prays for. Justice. He prays for victory over the... Israelites' enemies. He prays for rain when a lack of rain comes. He prays for food for the land when a, when a famine's over the land. He prays for being found when the people are lost. And he prays for freedom when the people are in captivity. 
These aren't wimpy prayers. These are bold, intense prayers. They're at the national level. And so, as I was thinking about this, some of us could pray the same things in a similar way that Solomon prayed here. The Israelites were taken into captivity and they were conquered by their enemies. Some of you who are in captivity to sin, even tonight, a prayer to heaven will release you from that captivity. Some of you, <laughs> some of you who desperately need food, who need nourishment, spiritual nourishment, a prayer to heaven will give you the bread of life. Moses prayed for manna, for the, or prayed for food for the Israelites, and God sent down manna, a bunch of food and some really good food. And God offers to you, if you pray for food, that is Jesus, God offers to you really good food in Jesus Christ, the goodness, the sweetness of Jesus. You want to be refreshed? Is there a lack of rain? Pray for rain from heaven and God will refresh you in the person of Christ. He's living water. And God, so God answers our prayers. So we pray boldly. God, is, God has always proven himself to answer prayers. And so it's kind of a wonder that we don't pray boldly. And finally, the fifth mark of Solomon's prayer, we have bend your knees, lift your hands, praise him, plead with him. And finally, number five, repent of sin. This is vital to his prayer. These verses 25 through 53, over and over again, he's praying for circumstances where the Israelites would be, would be punished for their sin. And then he says, but Lord, when they, when they recognize this and when they repent of their sins and when they return to you, would you please hear their cry? So it's a prayer of repentance that he's making on the people's account. It's words similar to this over and over again that mark these verses. Solomon prays, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive. So is this our prayer? Are we prone to pray for repentance? Believers, are we prone to pray for repentance? Because we don't just repent once. And have faith in Christ and we are, we are saved. That is true. But all of our Christian life is made up of repentance. Continual repentance. Because we want to glorify God in our hearts. And out of gratitude we repent of our sins. And generally, as is the case with the people of Israel, the reason that we do not repent of our sins is because we don't realize the depth and the nastiness of the plague in our own hearts. Solomon says this. That the people come to repentance through knowing the affliction of their own hearts. So the question is, even for you believers, these people were God's people. The question is for believers. Although you've been shown grace in Christ, do you continually pray for God to show you affliction in your own heart? Do you continually pray for God to reveal sin in your own heart? That's the way to glorify him. Continually being made more like Christ, sanctified into his image will happen through continual repentance. And also, I would encourage you to pray humbly and to pray boldly that God would reveal sin to you in your heart. That's, that is one of the most dangerous prayers that you can pray by experience. That's one of the most dangerous prayers you can pray because God will show you your sin and it will be so bitter because you will realize that there are things and have been things in your life which displease him. But then it will be sweet on the other side because you will see the grace of Christ in forgiving you of that sin. 
And so it is a bittersweet thing. Pray that God would reveal to you what sin remains. Pray that God would give you more conviction of sin. Believers, you who have already been shown grace in Christ, pray for more conviction of sin so that you might receive more grace in Christ. And ask yourself, what what sin am I coddling? Think about this. Think about it intensely because we want to please God as believers, but think what sin am I possibly coddling? And then consider what is possibly so wonderful outside of the person of Jesus Christ that you would not repent of sin and turn and ask the Lord for forgiveness in. What, what sin could you possibly have that is more wonderful than the person of Jesus Christ and fellowship with God? And so repent and be forgiven. So we have the five marks of Solomon's prayer. Bend your knees, lift your hands, praise him, plead with him, <laughs> plead intensely, and then repent of sin. Now, this is all very good, and I believe these are good things and helpful things for your own prayer life, and I hope that you will take them to heart. However, if we were to leave it at that, that would be no better than me giving you a TED Talk. Do this, do this, do this. Right? Joyce Meyer can write books on what you're supposed to do, but the Bible shows us the grace of Christ. And so I, was, I want you to see this here. Why do we pray? What's the reason we pray? There's no use in praying if it's no better than anything else we do in life. But I want to show you the glory and the, the, the glamour of why we're praying and why we're able to pray. You'll notice here in 1 Kings 8, that a sacrifice is made. There's a sacrifice made. Before his prayer in verse 5, 1 Kings 8, 5, there's a sacrifice, huge sacrifice. And afterwards in verse 62, Solomon sacrifices just tons of goats and bulls. I'll read this to you. Verse 62. Listen to how many, by the way. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen, and 120,000 sheep. That is a huge sacrifice. But it was required of priests to make a sacrifice before they entered in to speak to God. And so Solomon copies this pattern. He makes a sacrifice that he might go in and speak to God. And then we also see here a priest. A priest was necessary to talk to God. If, if For the people to communicate with God, it was necessary for there to be a priest or someone to go between. It's called a mediator. Or like an umpire in baseball, he kind of, he makes the calls, right? It's a go-between. Mediator. And so we see a priest here. Solomon's a priest in this this chapter. He goes between the assembly of Israel and God God. And he speaks on behalf of the people to God. That was the job of the priest, to speak on behalf of the people to God. So there's both a sacrifice and a priest. Now question, is it necessary in the 21st century for there to be a sacrifice and a priest in order for you to come in prayer before God? What do you think? No's and yeses. Let's look into it. Did God get less holy since 1 Kings 8? You can still answer. Did God get less holy? Did man get more holy? Nope. 
then there's still a priest and a sacrifice necessary. You don't have to go to the local tabernacle. I don't even know if we have one in Rockford, but you don't have to go to the local tabernacle. But rather, God has provided a priest and a sacrifice in the person of Christ. And that's the sacrifice and the priest are still necessary, but now Christ is our better mediator, way better than Solomon, way better than any priest in the Old Testament. Christ is our sacrifice and our priest. The sacrifice is done, finished, once and for all on the cross. There's the sacrifice. And the priest is the person of Jesus Christ who, after his death, ascends into heaven. You see, entering into the presence of God. He ascends into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God for all of eternity. And do you know what he does for you believers? Prays for you. He prays for you. Jesus Christ himself is praying for you. By, by name. In the, in the Gospels, it says that he prayed for Peter. It says that Satan was going to tempt him and sift him or take him, right? But Jesus prayed for him and he was kept. And the same is true of you. Yes, you need a sacrifice. Yes, you need a priest. But they've both been fulfilled in Jesus. And now he sits in heaven and he prays for you. How does he pray for you? He prays for you fervently. Hebrews 5, 7. Write these down and look at them later in your groups. He prays for you fervently. He shed his blood on the cross. He died on the cross. And do you imagine that he would not sweat blood over his prayers for you? In Gethsemane, he's like sweating blood. Jesus prays fervently and passionately for you as people because he has great love for you. If that's not enough, he prays sympathetically for you. Hebrews 4.15. What do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus took on the form of man and so was tempted as we are. And he knows our temptations. And so as he is in heaven, he's praying sympathetically for you, knowing where you're at, knowing what's going on. Again, Hebrews 4.15 is the verse for that. And as much as Satan tempts you and as hard as Satan tempts you, Jesus is praying harder for you and more for you. And so you're kept. Another one, he, he prays permanently for you. So that in ancient Israel, the high priest would enter in for a time and make intercession for the people. But Jesus sits in heaven permanently. He's not moving from that throne. He prays for you permanently. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. Read that one. He prays for your sanctification. John 17, 17 through 19. And he prays for you to be kept. In times when you doubt... In times when you think that you can lose your salvation, Jesus is praying for you to be kept. And if Jesus prays for you to be kept, you will be kept. That's John 17, 10 through 12. And Jesus even prays that you would have the Holy Spirit to help you pray. So when you feel weak and when you feel incapable of praying, when you feel like your words This was me earlier today. When you feel like your words are nothing and can't measure up to the glory of God, why would God hear my weak, pathetic prayer? Because he's given his Holy Spirit and put his Holy Spirit in you. Galatians, he has given us the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. And so the spirit helps us in prayer and Jesus prays that we would have the spirit. John 14, 16. So the implication of this, believer, is rejoice. (laughs) Rejoice. You've got nothing to do here except rejoice. 
Because as Satan tempts you in heaven, you've got the best defense attorney there ever was, who himself wrote the law and who himself died on your account. And he's standing in heaven as your defense attorney right now before God. And so as Satan accuses you and reminds God of your sin, Jesus reminds God that, he, that Jesus himself took your sin. He's your defense attorney day and night, fervently, sympathetically, and permanently. And non-believer, though, you ought to weep and tremble at this. You should tremble at this because Jesus isn't in heaven praying for you. It says in John 17 that he doesn't pray for the world, but only for his people. And so if you are not in Christ, if you have not had faith in Christ and repented of your sins, then you should be terrified by this in a very real sense. Jesus is not praying for you. And Satan doesn't even need to accuse you because your own life is a damning enough testimony against you. However, the prophet Isaiah says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Certainly. And so, as we're talking on prayer, your first prayer tonight can be three words. Lord, save me. And that is necessary. And Jesus will pray for you then when you pray to him. So Jesus, like Solomon, prays to God on account of the people. I'll leave you with this. In verse 66 of 1 Kings 8, look at that. It says this, all this has happened. Solomon's made a prayer to the people. Verse 66, on the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their homes. How did they go? Joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. So you, brothers and sisters in Christ, how are you, are you to respond to this? If the people in ancient Israel went away having a blood sacrifice from bulls and goats and Solomon as their high priest, they went away joyful and glad of heart and they praised God for his goodness. Now you, believers, have the perfect sacrifice and eternal sacrifice of Jesus Christ and a, a great high priest in heaven right now making intercession for you and praying for you. You should go away then with that much more joyfulness and gladness of heart and exulting in the, in the goodness of God towards you. That's the response. Verse 66. So go out of this place, praising God. Father, when you come to you in prayer, you are a great God and you are a good God and you have shown us forgiveness in Christ and given us, <laughs> not only that, not only if you was he offered up as a sacrifice, but after that, he was then exalted into heaven and stands right now as the high priest of believers, reminding you of the blood which was shed on our account. And as much as Satan accuses us, he is reminding you of his death on the cross, Lord. Remind believers of that tonight, that they have the most powerful being in the universe on, on their side as their advocate before the, the Father. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. Let us go out of here rejoicing and glad of heart. We praise you for what you've done. Amen.